Subscribe to The Spectator magazine this Christmas and get the next 12 issues in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but you'll also receive a bottle of Tattinger champagne worth £42 to see you through to the new year. Join the party today at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. And welcome to Table Talk, Spectator Life's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by food writer B. Wilson. B is the author of six books about food and eating. And her last two books, First Bite and The Way We Eat Now, were the Fortnum and Mason food books of their respective years. She's won five Guild of Food Writer awards for her journalism. B, welcome to Table Talk. Thanks so much for having me. B, we always start our podcast with the same question, which is, what are your earliest memories of food? Oh, I feel like all of my memories are connected with food. I have a very early memory to do with, I've been fixated with butter for about as long as I can remember. I remember just being very, very young and thinking, this is just the most delicious substance in the world. How can I maximise the amount of this that I eat? And I remember, but I mean, this clearly can't be my earliest food memory because it was a point at which I was being given some control over what was on my plate. But we had baked potatoes and my dad had just put the butter on the table and allowing me to butter it myself. And I remember just, I just kept going and kept going and kept going. And I was thinking, how much butter can I add before somebody stops me? And it was quite a lot. I think it was about <laughs> half a pack. But that's clearly not my earliest memory because I must've been about six or seven by that point. And I suppose, I don't know, I've got, I've got all of these memories of foods that I don't really eat anymore. Like my mum would go, I grew up in Oxford and she, there's a really good market there where she'd get fruit and veg, but she'd buy things like cob nuts that are now quite hard to buy. And she would just hand me a bag of cob nuts. And I remember just kind of sitting on the step outside our house, eating cob nuts. That's a very happy memory. You've written a lot about how we develop tastes and ways of eating from from a young age. What was food like in your household when you were growing up? My mum was a really good cook in a quite an old fashioned Delia Smith sort of way. But I don't think she ever had high self-esteem about herself in the kitchen. She didn't kind of rate her skills. And this is something that makes me really sad that so many women of that generation, and I think it continues around the world, based on conversations I've had with people who've worked with amazing home cooks in India, that somehow the cooking that women do every single day, even though it's both an art and a science and an incredible form of love, in my opinion, it doesn't really get the respect it's due. And so that kind of filters into how the cooks themselves think about what they're doing. And I think I've always been more I don't know, maybe I'm just more big-headed than my mum is. <laughs> I'll say, wow, I just made a really amazing soup. Can everyone please admire it? <laughs> and she never would have done that, I don't think. There was always something wrong with what she was making. She was always trying to draw attention to the flaws. Even though I look back and I kind of picture these wonderful kind of stews and dumplings and things like that that hardly anyone makes anymore. I like the thing that Nigella says, that you're allowed to apologise for one thing in a meal. And then you have to stop because my memory of my mum was producing these wonderful dishes and she goes, this is wrong and that's wrong. And I'm so sorry about X, Y and Z. And I rather like the idea that you can say one thing. And I love it. that. <laughs> and because I still 
desperately have that compulsion mm. to apologize and I think as a cook also you notice everything don't you so you want to kind of point out yeah. well this should have been lime juice and it's lemon juice and I'm sorry this is a bit thinner than it should be and this is but it just kind of ruins everyone's enjoyment yeah. I think Nigella's right that if you have that compulsion just get one thing out yes. and then stop and then just celebrate the fact you're eating something wonderful and and what were meal times like in your household be meal times were mixed and I do think so my parents separated when I was 14 and it's very much on my mind because I'm going through a painful separation at the moment so there's one fewer chair at the table actually we haven't removed his chair but um yeah my husband's plate is no longer there so for a long time I've been aware when you hear these people talking in quite an idealized way about nuclear family meal times as if they should be this wonderful happy thing I think probably for the first 10 years of my life in my family they were give or take I was a really greedy child so I loved family meals because that was just the moment at which you ate so that seemed happy enough to me but as soon as I was old enough to be aware of a kind of social atmosphere to be sitting at a table with two people who don't really love each other anymore is a horrible thing and my sister became anorexic I'm two years younger than her so that was also an utterly utterly miserable dynamic at the family table so I'm very wary of when we just assume that the family dinner table is automatically some wonderful happy place at which great conversation happens and people are sharing the most amazing meal and they're all bonded by it because sometimes that's the case and it's so important to me I feel like my whole relationship with my three children is forged over food they're my favorite people to eat with I love it we laugh we listen to mad Spotify songs we mostly enjoy eating the same things but there are certain battles over things like chili and garlic which I like more than one of them does but yeah it wasn't always happy at the dinner table growing up and how did you then subsequent to that find the joy in food I mean you've you've spoken about being greedy as a child but then there's this emotional side that's that's much harder and now you have this infectious joy of of eating and cooking how how did that happen I think it was quite hard one and I think that's another thing we don't talk about so at the point that my sister became anorexic and that things like that go on you know I know that you've got people in your life who've experienced eating disorders it's it goes on for years the mindset continues for years and then actually my best friend at school was also anorexic and I was always somebody who was around people who were suffering that form of eating disorder so I didn't necessarily see what I was doing as being as disordered but I would now look back and say I had a totally disordered relationship with food I was a yo-yo dieter I was a compulsive eater this is kind of after the lovely prelapsarian, happy, innocent, joyous, greedy stage up to the age of about 10. And like lots of girls, as you're going through puberty, you suddenly just question your body, your body's relationship with eating. And for years, I think eating was a really complicated thing for me. And I still loved it. I loved the actual act of eating. I loved the greediness of it. But then there was remorse, there was self-loathing. And it took me years of kind of retraining myself to be kinder to myself around food. I just think that's the key. I think it's not about, people have all of these misconceptions about eating disorders. They think it's about what size you are. They think you can't have an eating disorder unless you're skeletally thin. It's not really about that. It's about the voice inside your head. And that was how I knew I'd reached a happier place with food. When I could eat 
anything. And I didn't have this horrible, angry voice telling me that I was wrong and that I wasn't allowed food. And tell us, what was food like at school and then university? You were at Trinity College, Cambridge. Do you have happy memories of food in the various institutions where you've been? I do have happy memories of food at Trinity, partly because that was just about getting away from food. And in a way, this is the part of what we're going to move on and talk about, the subject of taking charge of your own kitchen and cooking alone. I loved doing student cooking on a tiny gas ring and it was the 90s. I remember roasted red peppers were this thing. I mean, I wasn't aware of them before then, but I'd read about them maybe, I don't know where I would have read about them, maybe Alistair Little or maybe Elizabeth David. And I remember just kind of regularly setting the fire alarms off because I was just shoving these red peppers under the grill and just getting them as black as I possibly could because just that idea of burning something on purpose so that the skin would fall off that seemed so glamorous and exciting and I loved the taste of them that was one of my first moments as a cook I just oh you know these raw peppers like growing up I don't remember anyone ever cooking a pepper in Britain I suppose some people did if their mums had different cookbooks from my mum. But I just, red peppers were boring. They were just raw. They were this kind of intrusion in a salad. And then suddenly to be able to take charge, burn the heck out of them, and for them to become this kind of silken, sweet, smoky thing, that was really exciting. And school food, I mean, actually, I think a lot about school food, partly because one of the things I do now is I'm involved in this food education charity called Taste Ed. So I've spent a lot of time, obviously not now that it's lockdown, but in schools, thinking about food, thinking about why we so often think we can palm off children with the worst food. But one of my early happy memories would be the kind of difference it made. I'm thinking back to primary school here, when you had a dinner lady just be really kind to you. So she might just be doling out. I mean, actually, I kind of loved school dinner food. She might be giving you kind of, mashed potato with an ice cream scoop do you remember that like it always had that kind of hemisphere and slightly (laughs) gravy and what would the main course be some kind of dried out gammon steak or something or some slightly dodgy sausages but she could give that in a kind way with love and make you feel really warm and nurtured or she could be a bit mean about it and I look back with such affection towards dinner ladies of just I think it's one of the most important jobs and we don't really talk about it much and they're so underpaid I shouldn't just be saying dinner ladies I should be saying school caterers because they're not all women but most of them are and the cooking that you were doing at university on on this little gas hob and under the grill was that a solo adventure or were you were you cooking for other people it was almost always a solo adventure but my friend Catherine who was one of the friends I had that suffered with eating disorders in her kind of second and third year at university, as she was coming back into the land of the living and wanting to eat again, I do remember us, I remember there was some evening where we just took some stewing beef and just emptied a jar of tapenade on top of it and put it in the oven and then went to my room and listened to music and we're just chatting for hours. And then we came back and it was just magical. It was kind of like the best recipe ever. So I do remember cooking experiments with her of various kinds, some of them less successful than that. I do remember cooking with people, but it was mostly a solo thing, I think. Yeah, because as a student, your time is almost all dictated by 
your essay crises and these quite sort of solitary forms of work. So I might be eating at really odd hours of day and night. It's a very personal timetable, isn't it? <laughs> it's a very personal timetable. And I just can remember that sort of crescendo in the week up to the essay and the days running up to the essay. I remember, you know, you're sort of hardly eating anything other than bowls of breakfast cereal because you're so anxious. And then you get the essay in and you feel the surge of relief. And actually, when I became a journalist, it's a bit like that. I quite like deadlines because you get that sort of endorphin rush after you've handed something in before you know the worst of whether the editor actually likes it or not. And I think the meals after an essay crisis would be wonderful celebrations. And maybe that would be when I would go out to cafes or restaurants with my friends as well. I quite liked eating in hall too. I quite like that whole, I mean, it depends on the institution obviously, but the kind of repertoire of institutional food, it has its moments. And what sort of thing would they be serving in Trinity Hall during your time there? I mean, the things, some of the things, I can picture kind of a lot of mixed grills. <laughs> I can picture that for the people that were rowing and had just bottomless appetites, there would be stacks and stacks and stacks of mother's pride bread and limitless butter and that some people would actually have 10 slices of white bread alongside whatever else it was they were eating. I can remember some pretty weird fricassees. I mean, like my last term when I got more serious because I felt about my work because exams were coming up, I started taking breakfast in the hall. And I think that was almost my favorite meal because that was just like a kind of greasy spoon fry up. I mean, there's just something about having a fried egg that someone else has made that is pure luxury. That's my enduring memory of Hall. Breakfasts in third term of third year. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was very ritualised. Yeah. And there it is social, isn't it? I, yes, I, it really is. There would be certain people, because most people can't get up that early, even with exams looming. Yes. So the people who have made it there for the greasy fried eggs. And people that you wouldn't necessarily socialise with or see, you know, they may not be your same subject or working on the same timetable otherwise, and yet every morning you would see them at breakfast. I really loved that about it. I loved that. I don't think ever at any other time in my life have I had a kind of social, repeatedly social breakfast in that way. Yeah, yeah it was mm. good. But you tell us about how you then decided to move into the world of food writing. You you were food critic for the New Statesman. You obviously wrote your brilliant Kitchen Thinker column, which I actually found, I found some old copies that I had ripped out a few years ago when I was clearing Aww. out a cupboard the other day. And I, I loved your column. Very okay. sad when it finished. But what made you decide to go into the world of food writing? And, and who were the writers at that point that you were reading who were your inspiration? I mean, I'd been reading food writing from a really young age because my mum, she didn't have a huge library of cookbooks, but she had Elizabeth David, Jane Grigson, Madda Jaffrey, and I think there was just a whole, Claudia Roden, whole generation of extraordinary female food writers. And we had those next to the kitchen table. And from a really, really young age, I would just sit at the table and read those. So I was probably reading Jane Grigson from the age of about eight or nine onwards. So by the time I eventually became a food writer, I feel those voices were all in my head. I still think those people are the greats. I think Jane Grigson has a combination of warmth and scholarship that nobody has ever equaled. I think Elizabeth David, she I feel like she's being underrated now. Maybe she was overrated too much. For a while, when I was first becoming a food writer, everyone would say, oh, Elizabeth David is the person that taught the British how to eat, which is a bit much because after all, not everyone read Elizabeth David and not everyone was eating fresh Mediterranean apricots and olive oil 
in the 1950s just because she had told us about them. Well, not me, because, yeah, you definitely hadn't been born then and I hadn't been born then. What set me off on being a food writer? I don't know. I, I sometimes think that's a strange question when people ask, why would you be a food writer? Because I think if you had the choice, why would you be anything else? Food is one of the very few universal human subjects, along with sex and death. And death isn't very nice to talk or think about too much. And sex, you can only really talk about that with a few people. Whereas food, I find it's just the ultimate human conversation. It's never ending. And I just felt very lucky. I fell into it as a hobby alongside an academic career. And then I had kids when I was quite young. Or I had my oldest one when I was 25. And I could have kept going, trying to be an academic, but seminars were at the same time as his bath time. And I'd already just found that I could actually just email an article in at any time of day. And that seemed the more appealing thing by then. And how did your, your cooking and approach to food change after you'd had your first child? It changed hugely. So the other thing, the thing I haven't mentioned, which I kind of miss out usually of how I became a food writer, I went on MasterChef. Which did I, you? Yes, I did. I got That's to the semi-final. And I, now I look back and think, I'm quite proud of that. But I don't know, I think maybe I felt a bit weird about it for a while, partly because <laughs> I felt like I really messed up the meal that I cooked on the round where I didn't get through. But I look back and think, wow, I cooked in a completely different way. You know, the meal that I cooked, it was the old Lloyd Grossman era. Mm. So MasterChef now, people who've come through now are 10 times more impressive because it's professional level and they're chefs. But it was still difficult because you were having to get three courses ready all at the same time, which is completely artificial because if you were attempting to do something with homemade ice cream or sorbet, which almost everybody did, that's going to have melted by the time that they've eaten the starter. So it's kind of, you're setting yourself up for failure. But I look back and I was making, when I say, you know, I've cited all of these lovely female food writers that I say I was influenced by, actually in my MasterChef years, which were very short-lived, it was all Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay's first cookbook before he was on TV taught me so much, except that I don't actually use any of the skills I learned in that book because they were kind of chefy skills. It was how to make an incredibly delicious kind of jus-like substance from boiling down unbelievable numbers of aromatics and meat bones and things. And I would make fish stock and I would kind of emulsify things and puree things. And I, the thing I made that I do sometimes get wistful thinking about, I used to, one of the things I made for MasterChef that was just a garnish alongside some fillet steak that was sitting on a bed of carrot rushdi with God knows what else, but there were these deep fried garlic cloves, which is a Simon Hopkinson recipe, where you had to blanch the whole cloves, first in chicken stock, then in chicken stock again, and then you would breadcrumb them and then you would deep fry them. And they had this kind of fondant texture. And I still sometimes dream about those, but yeah, I feel much too lazy to actually make them, <laughs> let alone for a garnish. <laughs> I don't really, you were asking, well, how did my cooking change after I had kids? Mm. Yeah, garnishing went out the window, <laughs> one thing. No more deep fried garlic cloves. No more deep fried garlic cloves, sadly. My oldest one, who was my first child, you see, my brain is still gone. It hasn't recovered. My oldest one is 21. I really should have got my brain back by now. He was quite adventurous about food from a young age. And I don't know if it was at the time I just thought, oh, well, I'm a food writer. He's watching me cook. Obviously, he's adventurous. And then this is partly the theme I wrote about in First Bite. My subsequent kids were not like that. So I now see 
so much of a human's relationship with food is temperamental and I think it's there from the beginning but for him like I would still be making his idea of something really really exciting would be boiled artichokes with melted butter and we just that kind of ritual of taking off the leaves together and kind of waiting for the really nutty there's that the outside leaves are a bit disappointing and then you get to the really wonderful ones and then you're just waiting for the drama of the choke inside that's a happy memory of cooking for him but on the whole I mean you're just kind of strung out and exhausted and shoving anything in the oven that you can and most of my culinary ambition kind of died okay in those years <laughs> I suppose be one of the things that's probably changed a lot since you started writing is is the rise of the internet and and social media and I know this is a theme that you've you've written about before whether it's to do with say clean eating or or sort of new obsessions do you think in general social media has been a good thing for food with more people becoming aware of different ingredients and approaches or do you think there's a sort of perhaps a kind of slightly darker side to it all I think actually the sharing of recipes is one of the few unequivocally benign uses of the internet I think it's wonderful I think sometimes I think of the internet as just a giant recipe swap and I think of the number of things I've learned that I would never have known had it not been for either Twitter or Google. I think the downside, I had a really interesting conversation with Claudia Roden about this when I interviewed her because she was getting an Observer Lifetime Achievement Award last year. And she's one of my all time heroes. And we were talking about the internet and she said, you know, I sometimes look at the internet. There are some good recipes there. Usually I find they're already mine. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, she didn't quite put it like that. That's making it sound more arrogant than it would ever be. But essentially what she was saying is, you know, we're on the internet searching and searching and searching for this stuff. And often the best things that you find are things that are already there in a cookbook, expressed better and at more length. So I think it's, it's, I think it's been amazing in some ways. And I think for spreading ideas or tips that otherwise just might have taken months if not years to cross the world and now you can have some chef saying here is a different way to scramble an egg or here is madeleines when was the last time you made them and suddenly you create a kind of mini madeleine craze the downside I mean you've alluded to clean eating I do think it's a pretty terrible time to be alive and eating and thinking about your body as a young person today. Like I look back at myself, age sort of 17, 18, 19, when I was miserable about my own eating and my own body. And I think at least there was an Instagram and yes, there were diets and yes, there were crazy kind of slimming shakes in the supermarkets, but there wasn't this whole world of status comparison about what your body supposedly should look like. And I find all of that stuff completely toxic. And yeah, the clean eating craze, it looked so innocent, didn't it? Because it seemed mm. to be just saying, you, you'll be fine, avoid all processed food and eat nothing but that which is whole and pure. But like every other purity cult in history, it doesn't end well because nothing is ever pure enough. And I've seen, it's, it breaks my heart. I've just seen too many young people that I know going through it right now of just feeling first they cut out carbs then they cut out fats then they think maybe they should go vegan and I'm not saying you know, lots of people are vegan it's healthy it's fine they're not depriving themselves 
But I think if you put together disordered eating and veganism or some sort of idea of what's healthy, it's the opposite of healthy. That's the huge downside that, you know, the internet is a form of contagion and it can be benign contagion or it can be non-benign. You've written a number of food books that have encompassed everything from food history to investigative journalism and the, the emotional psychology behind eating. But am I right in saying you're working on your first cookbook at the moment? How has that been different in the writing process? I'm loving it, but it's giving me a whole newfound respect for recipe writers. It's difficult, isn't it? It's you're doing two completely different things at once because you're doing one thing which is practical and sensory and using your hands. And then you're doing this other thing, which is trying to crystallize that in words. And I mean, actually, it's another thing where Nigella has written about it so brilliantly in her latest cookbook, where she says, on the one hand, you could have one recipe that just lasted for an entire book because if you were really to explain how to do anything you say wait I haven't actually told you what simmering means and I need to kind of go into that in some detail before and on the other hand it's the assumptions you make isn't it this is partly what the book's trying to be about it's called the secret of cooking I don't think there is one secret of cooking by the way but I'm trying to look at the social aspect of cooking and sort of consider things that cookbooks don't always write about such as, you know, they just say drain the pasta and they don't actually name which utensil you might choose to drain the pasta. And the assumption is it would be a colander, but actually I don't think the colander is the best way to drain pasta. So I'm looking at things like that, but yeah, I'm absolutely loving it because I feel I'm so lucky that here we are in the middle of lockdown and almost everyone I know is cooking more, whether we want to or not. And at those moments where I'm thinking, oh God, do I have to cook another lunch? I then think, oh, this is great. It's research. I can't complain. Even if it fails, that's all useful. I think that's such a lovely way of looking at it. It's funny when you mentioned the Nigella bit, what I thought you were going to say, of course, you're going to talk about the endless recipe. But actually the, the bit that came to my mind was where she talks about the variations that you suggest within recipes and you say well you know if you don't like this then you don't need to put it in or you know this isn't essential but actually you can take that to such an extreme because no part of any recipe is essential and at the same time every single part is and I I think of that so often when I'm recipe developing in the kitchen you know what how static is a recipe I'm I'm such a control freak that to me it is in concrete but also therefore I want to suggest every possible permutations that people know what they can do And I think it takes you into a slightly different headspace to other types of writing and working. It's a completely different form of writing. And it's the ways in which people interact with cookbooks I find so exciting. The thought that your book could get splattered with other people's dinner (laughs) is magical. I mean, I think, you know, people, novelists maybe take offence if somebody scribbles all over their book, but cookbooks are designed to be defaced and used and added to. And yeah, I'm struggling with that, the control freak thing of, because I feel that one of the big things is that people who are super reliant on recipes don't have that freedom to Yes, substitute. exactly that, exactly, yeah. And that's the key skill in life really with cooking because you don't know what's going to come into your kitchen. And if you completely limit yourself to recipes that you have every single ingredient for, then you're really going to, kind of miss out on all of these wonderful things you could be making on the other hand you don't want to one of the editors I'm working with has said you know cookery writers should be bossy she said that that kind of makes people feel relaxed at some level like you don't want to create an air of doubt like well you could do this we could do that as if there are too many options because it is an instructional it is an instructional and it's 
you're aiming for a certain result in somebody's mm. life at the end of it. So yeah. how do you deal with this? What is your solution? <laughs> paragraphs and paragraphs of, of various different permutations. I think the way I like to do it, and I don't know whether or not readers like to read it this way, but I like to explain why I'm doing things. So if there is something in a recipe that seems, particularly something that seems peculiar or is perhaps esoteric, I want to say, this is why I'm doing it. And it might seem strange, but go with it. But then I think I... I would have a tendency to take that to an extreme. I would want to explain every single bit. And then you sort of find yourself Harold McGeeing the whole thing, which is not necessarily what people want from a piece of food writing, which, you know, it's half instructional, half prose. The cookbooks I love most are the ones that balance that so carefully. And that's what I'm always aspiring to and, and possibly slightly missing. You're not missing. I love your recipes. <laughs> oh, They're great. But it is it's a funny balancing act, isn't it? Mm. Because you realise, and I now look at people like Elizabeth David, who I think people maybe don't like because she's so compressed and there are so many assumptions there. But what that then does is that each of her recipes is almost like a poem. Yes. Whereas, as you say, when you're trying to Harold McGee it and sort of hold someone's hand. I mean, one of my favourite cookbooks is the Zuni Cafe cookbook. Do you have that one? I do, yeah. Where, where she goes on at such lengths about even something like how to tear breadcrumbs for a roast chicken salad and she'll say you know some of them should be a bit larger and some of them should be smaller because people will actually really go for the smaller crispy bits and you feel she's simultaneously trying to tell you to be incredibly free and yet she's micromanaging what you're going to do but then sometimes I think if you've cooked out of a really expansive long recipe like that the next time it's all in your head yeah I'm also just trying to picture I mean when you're rushing in the kitchen in a harried state and you need something to be on the table, preferably half an hour ago, but definitely not too many minutes from now. Do you have time to read a two and a half page recipe? Probably not. No, and we see like the huge success of like Rukmini Ayer's roasting tin books, where people who love food and, and can cook a bit have suddenly started cooking five or six times a week because it's so liberating to have interesting flavours and interesting techniques that are pared down into this one tin dish which isn't a new idea but the way she's done it is so clever. I think those books are amazing I've yeah. got huge respect for them because I just feel there are whole swathes of people that as you say would never cook at all were it not for that mm. my sister very generously brought two of her kids and she quarantined for two she lives in the states most of the time she came to visit us just before the November lockdown I'm trying to think now but she's kind of not interested in food but you know like any parent she is having to produce meals every day and she just picked those roasting tin books off my shelf and she's like this I can do this I can do this it. is exciting yeah. I can do it it appeals to her because she kind of is vegetarian and wants to mostly be eating those kind of grain based you know some grains some interesting vegetables some kind of delicious soy sauce and sesame oil and lime yeah. juice dressing at the end it's a good formula. I've got huge respect for her mm. and what she's doing in those books. And B, which, which of your books are the most sort of splattered with all kinds of different food? <laughs> One of the books I feel is really underrated that I mention a lot is Lucas Holweg wrote, he's only written one cookbook, Good Things to Eat, and no one seems to know about it. And every recipe in that book is perfect. And it just cheers me up. There's something about his spirit and his gusto and appetite that really appeals to me. But then of people writing now, I think Mira Soda's amazing. I think her books are incredible for just, you could go to your fridge and think you've got just a few slightly tired vegetables. And then before you know it, you've made some wonderful 
Indian feast and she has a sort of very calm methodical air in how she writes so I love her book I mean I've got all of my books are splattered and actually the true test the ones that have actually lost their entire cover <laughs> so there are some where this is true of most of my Nigellas my Anna Joneses will actually just I have to write Anna Jones on the spine because <laughs> the entire hardback has fallen off because <laughs> I've cooked from it so I think she's brilliant and she doesn't have a bad recipe no and they've got all these little grace notes I mean she taught me I use lemon zest so much more in my cookery because of her because she I just noticed she just kept adding it and it would somehow make a simple dish of pasta taste amazing Rachel Roddy's great then there are all these American food writers I really like like Melissa Clark oh Diana Henry I forgot to mention who's just phenomenal I think Gil Meller is great I love cookbooks. In general, I love cookbooks. I have too many cookbooks. I'm endlessly trying to weed some of them out. And instead, I just fall in love with them all over again. (laughs) You mentioned earlier taking charge of cooking and how that's something that you've been thinking a lot about. Tell us about that. Taking charge of cooking. So I've just written the foreword for an old book from 1954, which actually was new to me as well, called Cooking Alone by Kathleen LaRiche. And I found it fascinating because she's writing at the same time as Elizabeth David's first books, but her repertoire of ingredients is completely non-Elizabeth David. It's kind of things like kidneys with mushrooms or tipsy cake or pikelets. It's very, very Miss Marple-ish and old fashioned. But the theme of the book, which is how you actually cook by yourself in the kitchen when it's maybe been forced upon you when you didn't choose to be alone, I find radically modern and it's a really interesting psychological cookbook about you know how do you manage buying just enough ingredients for one person without feeling really demoralized by it and I feel that with the pandemic this is something that so many people are grappling with we're not cooking under circumstances that we chose we haven't got the people around the table that we want to be cooking for and yet For many of us, food is still this thing that anchors us. It's the great joy in the day. So we may as well extract as much pleasure from it as we can. And I think it's a really good book on that subject. And what advice does she give? She gives all sorts of different advice. The bit I found maybe most moving, the final chapter is about, she kind of gives people these slightly funny period stereotypes. So there's a career woman, there's a bachelor there's a bed sitter there's an old woman living alone with pets and the last chapter is called the lonely mother and it's this woman who her kids are out of the house from 9am to 5pm and the minute that they leave she feels this mixture of regret anxiety and also relief I thought that was really good I think those three emotions are what you can feel when you have the kitchen to yourself you have this kind of stab of I'm here by myself. And then you can think, oh, I'm here by myself, possibility. So in that chapter, she's trying to go through this woman's head and think, how can she change her mindset? So her mindset was no point cooking if it's just me. And for many days, she wasn't even eating anything while the children were out of the house. And then by the end of the chapter, she's thinking, what if she were to treat herself as her own guest in the kitchen? And I think that's such a beautiful way of thinking about it. I mean, it's the American food writer MFK Fisher also talks about this somewhere that this act of being generous to yourself when you're cooking or eating alone. So I think that's one of the big tips really is just turning it around. And instead of saying, 
at the beginning she says that when she talks to people about cooking alone they'll just say I just can't be bothered and it makes me sad I think there is obviously we've come a huge way from 1954 single person households in the UK and elsewhere are just ever rising so it's a completely normal thing to cook and eat alone but there is still this stigma about it and this sense that it's not worth it if it's just you and the big advice of the book is it's totally worth it treat yourself you know, whatever your pleasure might be you can indulge in it without anyone watching or judging so what for you would be your alone treat to to cook or eat so there are certain ingredients that I I have different levels of sort of different people in the household having left the table and what I might make. So at the moment, because as I said at the beginning, I'm going through separation. So the two kids I have at home are age 11 and 17 and the 11 year old, he's not picky like he used to be, but he just, he doesn't like chili. He doesn't like most of the cuisines that I really love, such as Indian food. He doesn't like Thai food. He doesn't like Vietnamese food, except he likes beef pho, as long as you take all the herbs away, which is like just saying he likes beef stock, basically, yeah. stock, <laughs> stock and noodles. Who doesn't? Yeah, who doesn't? But I mean, you know, he's got a point. But so if he's gone to his dad's, but I've still got my daughter there, we might have something like a really spicy vegetarian Vietnamese meal with loads of chilies and loads of mint and loads of herbs if it's just me totally by myself I'm sort of the only person in the house that thoroughly loves polenta everyone else has texture my daughter will politely eat it but then I notice that she kind of just leaves a quarter of it on her plate so actually she can't really love it in the way that I love it I love everything porridgey rice puddingy those indeterminate textures that some people just are completely freaked out by, I adore them. So I might make one of the books I was cooking from a lot last year, there was a great Romanian cookbook called Carpathia by Irina Georgescu. And that book taught me that polenta can be just as wonderful as starch as potatoes or pasta. And actually I more make this for my breakfast. She has a thing in there that's just called Romanian breakfast. That's just incredibly cheesy polenta with a fried egg and sour cream on top. And that for me is heaven. That sounds delicious. And what have you been missing over lockdown? There've been various stages where we've been able to eat out or not eat out. We can access different things. We haven't been able to eat with our friends in the same way. What is it that assuming at some point we get back to normality you're most looking forward to from an eating point of view? I would love to have a restaurant meal with friends. I just, I love restaurants. I miss restaurants. I feel it almost sounds self-indulgent as an eater to say I miss restaurants because I'm just aware people working in hospitality, it's awful to think the number of lives and livelihoods that depend on that industry. And they have been so messed around by the government by successive phases. I know it's not easy to make any of these decisions, but somehow the decisions could have been made a lot better. Yeah, I'm just desperately looking forward to just being in some glamorous London restaurant with a drink and a group of friends a gaggle of friends without worrying I mean that just seems like an unattainable dream at this point still doesn't it's like it? another life yeah totally another it does life feel like I another era this, doesn't it when we yeah do I had that. I now look back and think this probably was too late to even be doing this but travel is well. like I'm not even really allowing myself to dream about travel and other places because that does seem like god knows when we'll actually feel like getting on an airplane again or whether that's the right thing to do but 
before the first lockdown, I went on this trip to Istanbul for a conference called the Paraberry Forum, where it's women, chefs and food writers from around the world gathering. And I'd been to Istanbul once as a child, but never again. And just, ah, oh, the food of Turkey, so delicious. And to be sharing food with all these people, and because it was a group of food writers, we were just going around all of the markets saying, have a taste of this, have a taste of that. And just the act of eating something off someone else's spoon, or sometimes off their hand even, I mean, the intimacy of that, that really does seem from another world. And I look back and think, you know, that was only, it was very early March, we probably shouldn't have been doing it. Looking back, I think that was crazy. It was crazy, but it was wonderful. And I kind of, I feel that eating is such a social act. And you know, much as I like this book that's celebrating cooking alone, and I'm very much embracing cooking alone myself as a form of mental, you know, just sanity, a way to get through, just to be able to share everything about it again in a kind of feast-like way, that's going to be so wonderful. What are you looking forward to? I think the same, but also... I've been doing so much recipe testing that the thought of feeding food to someone who doesn't live in the same household with me feels incomprehensible at the moment. <laughs> I just I just want to Delighted pull my to food off food onto living. anyone else. <laughs> I keep reading your recipes and <laughs> soon. And B, while we can't exactly travel right now, we can at least imagine or dream where we might like to be and what we might like to be eating. What what would your dream meal be? If I could just sort of travel all over the world, I always think about there was a year my sister lived in Rome and I went to visit her and we ate deep fried artichokes together. Like I'm slightly obsessed with globe artichokes. I just think they're so delicious. But the ones you get in Rome where they puff up like a sunflower. And although I will deep fry stuff at home, like I'd made some amazing onion rings this week. Like that was the gastronomic highlight of my week, <laughs> onion rings. But actually a good onion ring is not to be sniffed at. But it wasn't a deep fried artichoke. So I kind of dream of a deep fried artichoke in Rome. I think the main course is the hardest part because I don't know, maybe just an amazing piece of fish in, I was in San Sebastian and some of the fish and maybe salt cod, but maybe something fresh, just anything really. Pudding is also impossible. So I've, I've only got as far as my starter. I just, <laughs> I have too many ideas after. No, okay, my main course, I'm gonna say, I once went to India and Indian food is the food I dream of and in Mumbai, every single thing I ate was delicious. And I had these kind of vegetarian feasts and I am a meat eater, but I have these complicated feelings about meat, partly because my sister's vegetarian. So I kind of think, who am I not to be vegetarian at some level? But when I'm in England, I can't imagine not being vegetarian, but in India, it was the one place where I thought I could eat anything here that's vegetables and I would never miss meat or fish. So maybe, some kind of incredible Indian tali like I had in Mumbai. Don't know. The meal's getting too schizophrenic though. I, <laughs> if I've started in Rome, I should maybe just stay in Rome. Okay, I'm gonna have deep fried artichoke, <laughs> then I'm gonna have linguini vongoli, stay in Rome. And oh, what would you have for your dessert in Rome? What would you have? Some incredible oh. fresh fruit. Well, maybe, maybe like an affogato. I feel like that's quite a classic. Affogato, um, yeah. yeah. I was going to say ice idea. cream, but affogato is a, a nice one to do. I might do hazelnut ice cream from that, Turin. That is a very good choice, I think. Yeah. In a cone or in a cup? I don't know. The cone has to be right, doesn't it? Mm. I, if I was in Turin, the cone's going to be delicious. It's going to so be right. It's going to be right. <laughs> so I should go cone. I should, yeah. 
Gillespie, thank you so much for joining us on Table Talk. And Kathleen Louisha's Cooking Alone, for which Bee has written the foreword, is published by Faber and Faber and available now. And Bee's forthcoming cookbook, The Secret of Cooking, will be published by Fourth Estate in spring 2022. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe. And if you've really enjoyed it, please do leave us a star rating and review. It really helps us out.